Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay for this week is entitled, Show Me the Money, Unconditional Allegiance to the Unconditioned God, and is based upon the scripture readings for Sunday, October the 16th, 2005. A few weeks ago, the tax collector of Santa Clara County sent me a property tax bill for $5,814.34. As if to accentuate the size of my bill and their intent to collect it, the envelope was unusually large. I also pay state and federal income taxes, California sales tax of 8.25%, taxes on gasoline, and on it goes. As a confessing Christian, should I pay these taxes? Or maybe that question is a smokescreen that obscures more important matters than money. Like us, the Jews of Jesus' day were saddled with many onerous taxes. In Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 to 27, we read about a temple tax. They also paid custom taxes and taxes on land. In the Gospel of Matthew for this week, a controversy arose yet about another tax, an annual tribute tax paid to Rome. The question arose, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Matthew 22, verse 17. As you might expect, and also like us today, the Jews of that day disagreed about how to answer that question. Those whom we might call realists collaborated and cooperated with Rome and paid the tax, perhaps out of conscience or maybe as a survival strategy. After all, who wanted undue attention from Rome? The idealists, on the other hand, were of a more nationalistic bent. They resisted, resented, and protested Roman economic exploitation. The Pharisees who despised Rome and the Herodians, as their name implies, who cooperated with Rome, were actually opposing sects. And so it is no surprise that the gospel for this week tells us that what they really wanted was not tax advice, but rather, quote, to trap Jesus in his words, end quote. That seemed easy enough. If Jesus agreed that the Jews should pay taxes to Caesar, that sounded like capitulation to the oppressive Romans and a renunciation of Jewish nationalism. But to answer in the negative so as to encourage tax dodgers was political sedition that would have jeopardized his ministry. In fact, oddly enough, one of the principal criticisms against the early Christians was that they were atheists because they refused to bow down to Caesar, to participate in the cult of imperial worship, that they made the subversive confession Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, and practiced what eventually was branded an illegal non-state religion. The trick question elicited a trick answer from Jesus. He asked them for the coin that was used to pay the state tax, then asked whose image it bore. Most likely, the coin in question bore the image of the Emperor Tiberius, who ruled Rome during those years from A.D. 14 to A.D. 37. One side of the coin would have deified Tiberius as a son of the divine August. 
while the other side would have honored him as the Pontifex Maximus, or chief priest of Roman polytheism, which is to say that the two sides of the coin celebrated absolute religious and civil authority for Tiberius. To a nationalistic Jew who confessed a radical monotheism, such a graven image was religiously offensive and politically humiliating. Certainly, much of the crowd would have been repulsed at the political, religious, and economic implications of honoring a pagan god by paying a tax to him. When Jesus' questioners responded that the coin bore the image of Caesar, he replied with a cryptic and enigmatic answer, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Rather than making an inflammatory political statement by denouncing Rome, maybe Jesus sought to evade their trap with a dismissive shrug, as if to say, If the coin belongs to Caesar, then let him have it. So what? It's only money. In that scenario, Jesus refused to take their bait. We might even imagine Jesus taunting his questioners by refusing to give the coin back and perhaps slipping it into his pocket. But what about the second half of his advice? What do we owe to God? Merely a temple tax or estate tax or income taxes or taxes on lands and customs or perhaps everything which is to say far more than money. I like the conclusion of New Testament scholar Marcus Borg. Quote, Thus this text offers little or no guidance for tax season. It neither claims taxation is legitimate nor gives aid to anti-tax activists. It neither counsels universal acceptance of political authority nor its reverse. But it does raise the provocative and still relevant question, what belongs to God and what belongs to Caesar? And what if Caesar is Hitler or apartheid or communism or global capitalism? What is to be the attitude of Christians toward domination systems, whether ancient or modern? End quote. At issue, then, is not merely my economic relationship to the government, but my existential relationship with God. On that ancient denarius was an image of Caesar, and merely money is owed to him. Whereas every human being bears the image of God, implying that I render to God, wholly and without condition, my entire self. Soren Kierkegaard, who perfected the art of irony like few others, once observed with dripping sarcasm that most people are infinitely malleable. Quote, one can as easily get them to do one thing as another, just as easily get them to fast as, is, as, is, as to live in worldly enjoyment. Only one thing is important to them, and that is that they are just like the others. Yet what God wants is neither the one thing nor the other, but primitivity, end quote. As his biographer Joachim Garf explains in his biography of Kierkegaard, for Kierkegaard, a so-called primitive relation to God is a relationship in which one relates unconditionally to the unconditioned. 
But in doing so, one inevitably comes into profound conflict with prevailing social and ethical norms. Kierkegaard thus envisioned an unavoidable collision between the profoundly radical nature of Christianity and what he variously described throughout his works as cultural convention, Christianity in which its terror has been tamed and so makes believers as docile as geldings, superficial civic virtue that barely rises above what he referred to as obedience to police ordinances, dead orthodoxy, vacuous social affectations, or the safety of neutrality. Paying your taxes is simple. However distasteful, you hold your nose and write a check. Rendering relative honor to that subordinate Caesar is the easy part, and perhaps even necessary. As a friend of mine once observed, civilization is expensive, and taxes pay the tab. But absolute allegiance to an ultimate God, rendering our entire selves to him without preconditions or limits, without hedging our bets, demands a higher order of magnitude. That will take a lifetime. Now here are some questions for further reflection. What are some of our modern-day Caesars beyond those that Borg mentions? Describe some of the collisions and conflicts between our cultural Caesars and Christian faith. Consider Borg's question, what belongs to God and what belongs to Caesar? How do we condition, hedge, or eviscerate what Kierkegaard called the profoundly radical nature of Christian faith? And finally, what have been some of your successful choices of faith in this area? For my book review this week, I reviewed the book by Yaroslav Pelikan, Whose Bible Is It? A History of the Scriptures Through the Ages, New York, Viking Press, 2005, 274 pages. Reading any book by Yaroslav Pelikan is a rare privilege and pleasure, not to mention an occasion for envy and humility by lesser mortals who fancy themselves as scholars. Magisterial, meticulous, encyclopedic, prolific, and prodigious. All these are words to describe Pelican, the sterling professor emeritus of history at Yale University, where he served on the faculty from 1962 until 1996. He has also served as the past president of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and in 2004 he received the Library of Congress's annual John Kluge Prize in the Human Sciences a million-dollar award that focuses on academic disciplines not covered by the Nobel Prizes. Most scholars in his guild would consider Pelican the greatest historian of Christian thought in his generation. Now in his early 80s, Pelican has written a wonderfully accessible book about the nature and role of the Bible in its worshiping communities. It follows as a sequel to his book, Jesus Through the Centuries, 1985, and then Mary Through the Centuries, which he published in 1996. The biblical documents are decidedly historical documents. 
not gold tablets dropped from heaven and kept pure from human time and place. The 39 books of the Hebrew scriptures, for example, were written across about a thousand years. The 27 books of the Christian New Testament, Pelican observes, are hardly a single book, but rather a sort of mini-library of early believers. As documents embedded in human history, Pelican reviews how these scriptures were first written, then transmitted, formed into a single rule or canon in a way that excluded other noteworthy candidates, translated into other language, hand-copied and then commercially printed, and variously and often divergently interpreted. Along the way, he demonstrates how the scriptures impacted and were impacted by art, architecture, hymnody, classical music, liturgy, economics, and politics. However historical, though, believing readers rightly approach the scriptures as more than ancient artifacts that require, even deserve, scholarly scrutiny. For in them we encounter the God who speaks, who hears, and who acts. Pelican clearly loves the good book that he has studied so assiduously for 60-plus years. Both his grandfather and father were Lutheran pastors. And he always has one eye on the ordinary believer in the local church or synagogue. In their personal piety and corporate worship, believers encounter the power of the Bible to change lives. We can and must analyze and scrutinize the text with all the tools of the historical sciences, but ultimately, Pelican reminds us, quote, I am not the subject, but the object in my encounter with the word of the Bible. The historical or philological desire to comprehend what it says has been and is vastly less important than the religious need to understand it in order to obey it. End quote. This is because to the eyes and heart of faith, the Bible is, after all, a love letter, one long love letter. Pelican's ultimate intention, then, in this book about the book is not to undermine its authority, but to celebrate its message. My film review this week is of a film entitled The Wild Paragraphs the Wild Parrots of Telegraph Hill. Two times in this film, Mark Bittner insists that he is not quote-unquote eccentric, but he describes himself as a failed musician who lived on the streets of San Francisco, who bounced around from one odd job to another, and who was not paid rent in 25 years. His ponytail, which he promised not to cut until he had a girlfriend, reaches almost to his waist. As for his tender care for a flock of 45 wild parrots, cherry-headed conures from South America, on Telegraph Hill just below Coit Tower, well, quote, it wasn't a plan, it just happened, end quote. Bittner knows them all by name and by their individual personalities. Connor and Mingus, Picasso and Sophie, Scrapper and Scrapparella, and so on. By the end of this endearing film, you are pretty sure that he is likely the most articulate street person and self-taught ornithologist who ever lived. You are not surprised that the city council honored his work, 
that scientists envy his daily field logs, that his still photography of his feathered friends is breathtaking, or that he has a memoir entitled The Wild Parrots of Telegraph Hill, A Love Story with Wings. The only real surprise is the incredible last two minutes of this outstanding documentary of an eminently likable human being, The Wild Parrots of Telegraph Hill. Finally, for poetry, we have, we have posted the poem God's Grandeur by Gerard Manley Hopkins. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, oh, morning at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with ah, bright wings. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, October 16th, 2005. And please join us every Monday for a new essay based upon the biblical lectionary, a book review, a film review, and a poem. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.